I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 25, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, volume 4, pages 972 to 980. We could all go on endlessly denouncing and exposing these corrupt and perverted priests, bishops, and cardinals, and never get through to them, and make them admit their sins, and confess them, and care about them, and repent of them, since their consciences are seared with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4, 1-4. Jesus knew that he would never get through to the Pharisees of his time, and make them admit and repent of their sins, because they were too bound up in their own self-justification and self-righteousness for him to ever succeed at doing so with them. And so his talking to them at all wasn't about that exercise in futility of getting through to these unreachable people, but for the sake of those who were standing around there too, and who were still reachable, and so that the Pharisees wouldn't be able to honestly say that nobody ever told them the truth about themselves and gave them a chance to repent when they stood before God and to tell the truth. So our talking to our modern Pharisees can't be about the impossibility of getting through to them either, following Jesus' example, but only for the reachable people who are listening, and so that our Pharisees have no excuse, and to tell the truth. Our Pharisees today not only don't care about what we say about them, but don't care what Christ is still saying about all of the same things that he said to the Pharisees 2,000 years ago since he hasn't changed his mind about Pharisees. And it's worse for the Pharisees today than it was for the Pharisees in Jesus' time because those Pharisees didn't claim to be followers of Jesus and openly denounced and rebuked Jesus, whereas our Pharisees do claim to be followers of Jesus while actually going against him and praise and honor and love him while actually hating, rejecting, insulting mocking and dismissing him. Their Christianity, in quotes, is as phony as the righteousness, in quotes, and religion, in quotes, of the old Pharisees were. So the terms whited sepulchers and a brood of vipers fit them every bit as well as they fit the old Pharisees. And Jesus asked these Pharisees today, just as rightfully and logically as he asked the old Pharisees, how shall you escape damnation? They were as full of dead men's bones and all corruption as were the old Pharisees. Jesus says about these Pharisees today, the perverts and pederasty and homosexuality and other corruption and hypocrites claiming to be priests, bishops, and cardinals while involved in those things. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lack the kingdom of heaven before human beings. You do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow entrance to those trying to enter. Matthew 23, 13-14 certainly applies to our corrupt excuse 
for a priest from Central Casting playing a priest in his own personal movie who told Teresa and her husband Bill that they couldn't come back into our church or help out the homeless there just because she wanted prayers and a mass said for a mentally ill woman and dared to disagree with his holiness because he doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven himself and keeps those who want to enter the kingdom of heaven through our church from entering. The same goes for all other so-called clergy involved in any kind of corruption, as I said before, since they also don't enter into heaven themselves or give a good example to those who are trying to enter and thus keep them out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You traverse land and you traverse sea and land to make one convert, and when that happens, you make him a child of Gehenna, twice as much as yourselves. Matthew twenty-three fifteen certainly also applies to these pederast and homosexual priests, bishops, and cardinals who make converts to homosexuality and pederasty of young boys and younger men as we have been reading about in The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Ingle, actually bringing out and exacerbating the homosexual inclination already there and making these boys and men twice the son of hell as themselves. The standard pharisaical line in defense of don't be judgmental is just an evasion of the truth against them, since fighting is another word for guessing and it isn't necessary to guess about something that is just obviously, that is just absolutely obvious. If some secular older person were proven to have had sex with a young boy, he wouldn't be shuffled off to another business office in the company so that he could continue his pederasty with other young boys in another area or given some other kind of slap on the wrist but would be put in prison without all of that, all of this rigmarole that has gone through with so many priests that we have been reading about in Randy Engel's book. It is really long past time that we stopped pussyfooting and playing around with these pederast homosexual and other kinds of corrupt priests, bishops, and cardinals when they commit such crimes and stopped treating these frauds like priests and giving them the respect due to actual priests until they start acting like priests and living up to their Roman colors, and never if they don't. We need to start following Jesus' example far more than we do and responding to fraudulent priests the same way that he did. All of these pederasts and other kinds of corrupt priests, bishops, and cardinals involved in their criminal activities need to be put into prison since other proven criminals don't get to stay out of prison. If these clergymen know for certain, knew for certain that they were going to go to prison for their crimes and not merely be moved to another parish or given a slap on the wrist, if it were proven, 99% of their criminal actions would cease because they can't do the time and be subjected to all of the molestation and violence entailed in that and so won't do their crimes. Leniency with these people doesn't work and only encourages them in their crimes. That's why the rate of pederasty, homosexuality, financial corruption, mediocrity, and incompetence in the church is as high as it is. Treatment for pederasty or counseling for it doesn't work, because if it did, no priest 
would be pederasts, since they already hear and read more counseling every day than the rest of us usually do in the church. And yet they still become pederasts when they do, with all of that help to avoid it, while most of us avoid pederasty without all of that counseling. Drug treatment for pederasts can't overcome their basic inclination and predisposition, or it would also work to reform serial killers and other murderers, and criminals in, in prisons would become unnecessary. The murderer Saul was knocked off his horse and temporarily blinded to turn him around, and maybe these corrupt priests could be reformed the same way as a last resort, by a spiritual conversion or reconversion. But the usual method of dealing with them would still be by prison. And now a reading from the Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality, and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4, pages 972 to 980. In his sixth open letter to Bishop Timlin, sent out on July 27, 2002, Dr. Jeffrey Bond opened the door to the hereto unasked burning question that goes to the heart of the SSD scandal. Bishop Timlin, in Bishop Timlin, is Bishop Timlin himself a homosexual whose secret vice has opened up, opened him up to blackmail by the Society of St. John? This is a very relevant question given the rule that extortion and blackmail, given the role that extortion and blackmail have played in the ecclesiastical career of other homosexual American bishops and cardinals. Perhaps we will get a definitive answer to this question when the John Doe case goes to trial. Bishop Martino suppresses SSJ. Bishop James Timlin retired from the Scranton Diocese on July 25, 2003. And the, he was replaced by Joseph Francis Martino, a former auxiliary bishop of Philadelphia, ordained by Anthony Cardinal Bevilacqua. On November 19, 2004, Bishop Martino issued a canonical decree of suppression against the Society of St. John. The decision to suppress the Society was based primarily on financial grounds and the SSJ's inability to achieve its stated aim in the six years of its existence. The decree was published by, in the diocesan paper, The Catholic Light, on November 25, 2004. Bishop Martino has since turned the matter over to the Holy See, which will have the last word on the SSJ. Members of the Society are currently in Rome attempting to have the decree overturned. Father Ordegoiti has, has been seen in Rome wearing a cassock, even though he has been suspended from ministry. Further, the Society was sent out a 2004 Christmas financial appeal after the decree of suppression was issued. The appeal letter states that the Society of St. John is alive and well. The Society of St. John fraud continues. As for the, SF, as for the FSSP, it should consider closing down St. Gregory's Academy. To repeat the warning of St. Anthony Mary Claret, the only morally certain solution 
to the corrupt moral corruption of a religious institute is to close it down and send the students and staff home. If the institute is to be reconstituted, it will need to an entirely new faculty, students, and priestly support to do so. This is because there are always relationships which will never be discovered. And if these are present in the new foundation, the conspiracy will be renewed, said St. Claret. One final note, Alan Hicks, former, the former headmaster of St. Gregory's Academy, has been hired as the principal of St. As a principal of Gateway Academy at the Legionnaires of Christ School in Chesterfield, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. His appointment as head of still another Catholic private boys' school after his scandalous performance at St. Gregory's and his protection of the criminal pederasts of the Society of St. John offers a perfect introduction to the unresolved scandal surrounding the Legionnaires' founder, Father Marcial Marcial. The Legionnaires of Christ, the Legionaries of Christ, the Father Marcial Marcial case. Although neither time nor space permits a full accounting of the charges of sexual abuse against the Reverend Marcial Marcial de Galado, the founder of the Legionaries of Christ, this writer believes that it is important to at least cite the essential details of the case as an expression of solidarity with his accusers in the hope that they will eventually receive a fair hearing from the Holy See. Whereas in the United States today, one credible charge of the sexual molestation of a minor by a Catholic priest or religious is sufficient to merit an immediate suspension of an investigation by church authorities. In the case of Father Maciel, nine credible charges have not as yet been sufficient to bring his case before the highest juridical tribunal of the Holy See. On the contrary, following the 1997 charges made against Father Maciel, the Holy Father went out of his way to demonstrate his confidence in and support for the priest, who as the head of a religious congregation reports to and is directly responsible to the Pope. On December 31, 2001, Angelo Cardinal Sordano, Vatican Secretary of State, second in command at the Vatican, blessed and inaugurated the new headquarters of the Pontifical Athenium Regium Apostolorum, the Legion's University in Rome. In this short account of the nature of the charges against Masio, that includes information on history of the order, the reader will recognize an uncanny number of similarities between Father Ordegordi, founder of the Society of St. John, and Marcial, the founder of the Legionaries of Christ. Early background on Father Marcial. Marcial Marcial was born on March 10, 1920, in Cotilla de La Paz in the lush agricultural state of Michoacan, Mexico, on the Pacific coast. His parents, Francisco Maciel and Mora Delgado Guizar, came from a honorable Catholic lineage that produced four bishops, including Bishop Blessed Rafael Guizar Valencia, who was beatified by Pope John Paul II on January 29, 1995, and one military general. On the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus 
1936, the 16-year-old Masio believed he received a calling to the religious life from God. The first uncle to permit Masio to enter into a diocesan seminary was Bishop Rafael Guizar Valencia of the Diocese of Veracruz, Jalapa. Jalapa. There appeared to be some kind of a misunderstanding at the seminary, and Masio left to begin the rounds of others, including a seminary in the Archdiocese of Chihuahua to the north under his uncle Archbishop Antonio Guizar Valencia. He had been expelled from four seminaries when his uncle Bishop Francisco Maria Gonzalez, Arias of the Diocese of Cuernavaca, undertook his undertook the private religious training and formation of his nephew, who was intent upon starting a religious order of his own. Prior to his ordination in 1941, Marcel began to attract a small group of pre-adolescent and adolescent followers to his new congregation called the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart and the Virgin of Sorrows. Marcel later changed the name to the Legionaries of the Pope, and finally, the Legionaries of Christ has an, an identification with the quasi-military model, model of the ancient Roman legions. His followers, called Masiel, Nuestro Padre, Our Father, a practice that the founder encouraged. Masiel was ordained by his uncle bishop in the Diocese of Cuernavaca, Morelos, Mexico, on November 26, 1944, at the age of 24. According to Alejandro Espinosa Alcala, author of El Legionario, and formerly one of Marcial's most trusted lieutenants, one year after Marcial's ordination, an accusation of molestation was made against him by Mr. D. La Isla, the father of three pre-adolescent boys whom he had placed in care of the Legion. After the youngest son confided to his father that Marcial molested him, the distraught father taxied from Curataro to the office of Marcial's uncle, Bishop Francisco Gonzalez, in Cuernavaca to file a complaint against Marcial. Espinosa reports that Marcial was punished by his uncle bishop, Suspensio Divinus, and he was stripped of his priestly faculties. There is no record that Marcial's status was ever regularized. Ignoring the sanctions, Marcial continued to exploit his family's hierarchical connections and embarked on a campaign to raise funds for his fledgling order from wealthy patrons in Mexico and Spain. In June 1946, while Marcial was visiting in Rome, he, was a, he attracted the attention of Pope Pius XII, who was said to be impressed by the, with the young man's zeal and the concept of his new militaristic religious order. On July 13, 1948, the renamed Legionaries of Christ was approved by Pius XII, who assigned the order the special apostolate or charism of recruiting and training priests for Latin America. That same year, Father Masio established a junior seminary in a beautiful mansion in Tilapan, a suburb south of Mexico City. He sent his older novices to the University of Comillas 
in Santander, Spain. The Jesuit-operated university trained diocesan priests for Mexico, whose closest, whose clerical ranks have been decimated under a series of anti-clerical Masonic regimes. According to Espinosa, it was during confession and spiritual direction that these older candidates from Mexico revealed to Jesuit priests. Rector Francisco Javier Beza and the school's spiritual director, Father Lucio, Lucio Rodrigo, that Father Maciel was involved sexually with his novices. Bound by the seal of confession and confidentiality, the two Jesuits searched out canonical means to clip Maciel's wings and minimize his influence and power. Maciel weathered the storm by attacking the Jesuits for their alleged resentments toward his new order. In the early 1950s, Maciel established new seminary headquarters at Antoneta, Spain, where students received their training in philosophy and then went to Rome to receive their advanced degrees in theology at the Gregorian University. Pope Paul VI approved the Legionaries of Christ as a congregation to pontifical rite in a decretum laudus, or decree of praise issued on February 6, 1965. In addition to the traditional vows of obedience, poverty, and chastity, legionaries take a fourth vow, the no snitch vow. They swear not to speak ill of Nuestro Padre Maciel or his legion, and to report to their superiors anyone who does. As a rule, Mexican postulants are recruited at an earlier age than their American, Canadian, and Irish counterparts, sometimes as young as 10 or 12 years old. The former are frequently referred to as Marcel's apostolic schoolboys, and because of their head start, are often given better posts and assignments, better posts and assignment than their North American brethren. This practice may account for the fact that all of Marcel's accusers were either Mexicans or Spaniards. In 1970, Pope Paul VI made the Mexican state of Quintana Roo the personal prelature of the Legion. To date, the Legion claims a congregation of 515 priests, 2,300 minor and major seminarians, and apostolic operations in over 92 cities in 20 countries. It is often looked upon as a traditionalist order along the lines of Opus Dei. The Legion's lay army, also founded by Father Maciel, is called Regnum Christi, Kingdom of Christ. It is said to have 50,000 members worldwide and has its international formation center for laymen and women, as well as deacons and priests in Wakefield, Rhode Island. It has an undetermined number of lay people that can reach 400,000 persons among the consecrated sympathizers and collaborators. First investigation in Rome. From October 1956 to February 1959, Father Maciel was the subject of a Vatican investigation involving earlier charges of financial mismanagement, misrule, and personal misconduct, drug addiction, not directly related to sexual abuse. According to Belgian Bishop Polidoro von Lieberg, OFM, the only 
surviving member of the investigative team who was at the time of his appointment serving as apostolic administrator of Illipel, Chile, the legion's seminarians in Rome were interviewed under oath personally and privately and given every opportunity to level any kind of accusation against their superior, Father Marcial Masio. None did, including the young men Masio had allegedly molested. Bishop von Blierberger stated that during this period, Father Masio was suspended from his office and left Rome, although eyewitnesses claim that Marcel never relinquished his authority over the Legion and controlled it from afar. Although Blierberger concluded that there was no evidence against misdeeds on the part of Father Marcel of any kind, he did acknowledge that two Mexican bishops and a group of Jesuits supported the accusations against the priest. On February 6, 1959, Marcel returned to his leadership post as Superior General of the Legionaries of Christ without a canonical definition of the case. It was not until the Hartford Courant expose of the winter of 1997 that the darker details of the 1956 investigation were revealed. Readers should keep in mind two important facts about the 1956 apostolic visitation to the Legion Seminary. First, the nine men who some 40 years later publicly charged Father Maciel with sexual abuse were not the same men who made the accusations that led to the 1956 investigation. Second, the young men who said they were sexually abused by Father Maciel prior to the 1956 investigation, thought that their superior was being investigated on charges of sexual molestation. They said they lied to protect Father Maciel, the Legion, and themselves from the hint of sexual scandal. The Hartford Courant breaks the story. On February 23, 1997, the Hartford Court published in Hartford, Connecticut, in the Legionary's Backyard, released an explosive story titled Head of Worldwide Catholic Order Accused of History of Abuse by Gerald Renner, current religion writer, and Jason Berry, author of Lead Us, you know, Lead Us Not Into Temptation. According to the authors, after decades of silence, nine former members of the Legionaries of Christ had come forward to accuse the Legion's founder and superior general, Reverend Marcio Marcio Delgado, Delgado, of sexual molestation when they were young postulants and seminarians in Spain and Italy during the 1940s, 1950s, and 60s. Marcio's accusers told the Corinth that their actions were galvanized by their ongoing reluctance of the Pope and the Roman Curia to respond to complaints by at least two of the victims who had used official juridical channels established by the Vatican to present their complaints. The immediate provocation was the publication of a letter written by Pope John Paul II to Father Marcial, in which the founder of the Legion was held up as an efficacious guide to youth. The names of Marcial's accusers are Father Felix Alacon Hoyos of Venice, 
Florida, Arturo Gerardo Guzman of Monterey, California, Professor Jose de J. Barba Martin Sol Barales Ariano, and Jose Antonio Perez Olvera, all from Mexico City, and Fernando Perez Olvera, Olvera at Monterey, Mexico. Alejandro Espinosa Alcala from rural Mexico, and Juan Jose Vaca of Holbrook, New York. Father Juan Manuel Fernandez Emanabar, a former Legion priest, left a statement before his death in 1995 that he had been sexually abused by Father Maciel. Most of Maciel's accusers have been have filed sworn affidavits detailing the nature, timing, and extent of their sexual abuse by Father Maciel. A tenth accuser, Miguel Diaz Rivera of Oaxaca, Oaxaca in South Central Mexico, issued a second affidavit following his initial tearful ceremony to the current against Maciel. He claimed that he did not wish to be part of any trial against the founder of the order. As a group, these men are atypical of most victims of childhood sexual molestation who have come forward in recent years. None of the victims seeks financial compensation from the Legion, and none plans civil or criminal legal action against the party. Unlike most Catholic victims of clerical abuse, the majority of the accusers still cling to their Catholic faith and have no ideological axe to grind, either against the Legion or the Church. Most are engaged in academic, legal, or ministerial pursuits, except for Alejandro Espinosa, who operates a ranch in rural Mexico. The men say that they, uh, men say they are simply seeking the justice and accountability due them by Holy Mother Church. With regard to the 1956 apostolic investigation of Maciel, his accusers confess that they were unable to reveal their dark secrets to their inquisitors out of a sense of fear and shame combined with an inordinate sense of duty and loyalty to the man they called Nuestro Padre. They were also aware that any scandal involving a charge of the unnatural vice made against a prominent churchman would bring the roof down on Maciel, the Legion, and stain their own reputation. There was a very human temptation to be silent in order to ensure their ordination to the priesthood or to secure their current position in the order. Arturo Gerardo said that before the Vatican investigators came to the seminary headquarters in Rome, their headmaster told them that they were evil people of bad intentions and that the boys did not have to tell the truth. Saul Morales, dubbed the charitable one by his classmates, said that in 1957, during the height of the investigation, Marcel sent him to the Canary Islands to make sure he would not testify against the founder. Morales said he served as a drug procurer for Marcel. He told the current reporters that it was difficult to get drugs, morphine, from the drugstores because they were forbidden illegal, but that the nuns in Catholic hospitals were more inclined to give him drugs to take to Maciel. 
He said that though Maciel frequently approached him for sexual favors, he successfully resisted. He said that he would lie across the doorway of the bedroom when Maciel drifted off to sleep to keep other boys out of Maciel's clutches. Nine months after he had returned to Rome, Borales was expelled by Maciel from the order, just short of ordination. Unspeakable acts. For some of Maciel's victims, the alleged sexual abuse occurred when they were very young, just entering puberty. For others, the abuse began in their mid-teens and continued into adulthood. All of his victims were virgins at the time they were sexually assaulted. Marcel's accusers say that he molested more than 30 boys from the 1940s through at least the early 1960s and several claimed to have maintained a long-term sexual relationship with him. The abuse in its early stages took the form of masturbation. In some cases, it progressed to sodomy. In his initial lengthy and detailed statement to the Courant, Miguel Diaz said that Maciel told him that he was suffering from a disease that caused him to retain sperm in his testicles, causing him insufferable pain that could only be relieved with a specific drug or through masturbation, which he asked me to perform on several occasions, and which I obviously did. Arturo Jurado said that he was 16 when the priest summoned him to his bedside. Marcel instructed him to massage his stomach to relieve his pain and gradually guided the boy's hands down to his genitals while Marcel began to fondle him. Gerardo said that Marcel told him that he had received a special dispensation from Pope Pius XII to engage in these sexual acts to relieve his pain. As a young seminarian, Gerardo said he masturbated Marcel about 40 times, but he drew the line when Marcel tried to sodomize him. Another boy was summoned to the bedroom when Gerardo refused to submit to anal penetration. Juan Vaca said that Maciel used the same grooming techniques on him. He was personally invited to join the Legion at the age of 10. He said he was 13 when Maciel began to molest him. The year was 1949. After his first sexual encounter with his superior, Vaca said he felt guilty and wanted to go to confession. Marcel told him that was not necessary, but seeing that the young boy was still distressed, gave him absolution and made the sign of the cross. Vaca suffered from terrible nightmares, so much so that during the day he would literally fall asleep standing on his feet. Vaca said Marcel had an obsession with light-haired, fair-skinned youth. He noted that when Marcel sent him to Spain in 1963, he received instructions from Maciel to get the prettiest and smartest kids. Father Vaca, who served as Maciel's personal secretary, was dismissed from his post and banished to Spain after he confronted Maciel about his sexual vice. Before he left the Legion in 1976, Vaca wrote Maciel a 12-page letter containing a record of Maciel's sexual abuse of his spiritual sons. Father Vaca was incarnated by Bishop John R. McGann as a diocesan priest in the Diocese of Rockville Center in Long Island, New York. Father Felix Alacan Hoyos was born in Madrid. He joined the Legion in 1949 at the age of 16. 
He served Masiel in many capacities as personal secretary, personal valet, procurer of narcotics for his superior and concubine. He left the Legion in 1966 before his ordination, but found a welcome in the Diocese of Rockville Center under Bishop Walter Philip Kellenberg. In 1978, Father Alarcon transferred to a parish in Naples, Florida, and retired as a priest in good standing in 2001. Jose Barba said that Maceo sexually abused him as a teenage seminarian in Rome in July 1955. Two years later, during the apostolic visitation, he told Vatican investigators that Maceo was a saint. Barber left the Legion of his own volition in 1962. He was weighed down by guilt and suffering. He later went to Harvard, where he earned an M.A. in Romance Languages and became a respected professor at the university. Fernando Perez said that he was approached sexually by Maciel when he was 14, but he managed to avoid his grasp. He said that Maciel punished him with solitary confinement for one month. He was later expelled from the seminary and shipped back to his family in Mexico. His younger brother, Jose Antonio, was not as fortunate. In the mid-1950s, on the pretense of being concerned for Fernando's health, Marcial summoned the youth to his room and told him that Fernando was addicted to masturbation. The priest said he needed a sample of Antonio's sperm, Antonio's semen, so as to cure, secure a cure for his brother from a doctor in Madrid. Marcel masturbated Antonio to orgasm and collected the semen in a flask. Marcel then dismissed the boy with the consoling thought that he had done a good deed. Antonio, who had been admitted to the seminary at age 10, left the Legion at the age of 25. He likened his experience with Marcel to being deflowered and said he felt himself an accomplice. Alejandro Espinosa, born in Michoacan, Mexico, the founder's birthplace on July 28, 1937, was one of Maciel's favorites. He served Maciel from 1950 to August 1962, when he suffered a crisis of conscience and left the Legion. In 1963, he informed the Episcopal office in Mexico City that he had been sexually abused at the hands of Father Maceo, but he was repeatedly told by church officials as well as his confessors to let God handle the matter. In his interview with the current, Espinosa recalled that Maceo on occasion would bring him and another youth into his bedroom to engage in mutual masturbation. Maceo tried to quell the boy's misgivings by telling him that the actions were morally correct and that he had received papal approbation to use boys, not women, to relieve his pain. Espinosa said that after years of sexual abuse, he was subject to homosexual impulses, but by the grace of God, he never gave in to them. All of his accusers claimed that Father Maceo led a highly compartmentalized life. They said he was quite capable of performing a deviant sexual act one moment and saying mass or performing one of his many clerical duties the next. One of his, the, one of the accusers continued that, commented that Father Maceo was not known for his piety. 
another was critical of the priest's lack of genuine affection and concern for the welfare of others and his total self-absorption. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Section 7, The Acts of the Penitent. I'll be reading from 1450, 1452, 1453, 1454, Fourteen fifty one. Among the penitent acts of contrition occupies contrition occupies first place. Contrition is the sorrow is sorrow of the soul and devastation for the sin committed, together with the resolution not to sin again. fourteen fifty two. When it arises from a love by which God is loved above all else, contrition is called perfect contrition perfect contrition or of charity. Such contrition remits sexual sins. Such contrition remits venial sins. It also obtains forgiveness of mortal sins if it includes the firm resolution to have recourse to sacramental confession as soon as possible. 1453. The contrition called imperfect or attrition is also a gift of God a prompting of the Holy Spirit. It is a it is born of the consideration of sin's ugliness or the fear of eternal damnation and the other penalties threatening the sinner, contrition or fear, contrition of fear. Such a stirring of conscience can imitate an interior process which under the prompting of grace will be brought to completion by sacramental absolution. By itself, however, imperfect contrition cannot obtain the forgiveness of grave sins, but it disposes one to obtain forgiveness in the sacrament of penance. 1454, the recognition, the, the reception of the sacrament ought to be prepared for by an examination of conscience made in the light of the Word of God. The passages, the passages best suited to this can be found in the Ten Commandments, the moral catechesis of the Gospels, and the apostolic letters, such as the Sermon on the Mount and the apostolic teachings, the Confession of Sins, 1455. The confession or disclosure of sins, even from a simply human point of view, frees us and facilitates our reconciliation with others. Through such an admission, man looks squarely at the sins he is guilty of, takes responsibility for them, and thereby opens himself again to God and to the communion of the church in order to make a new future possible. 1456. Confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. All mortal sins of which penitents, after a diligent self-examination, are conscious must be recounted by them in confession, even if they are most secret and have been committed against the last 
two precepts of the Decalogue. For these sins sometimes wound the soul more grievously and are more dangerous than those which are committed openly. When Christ's faithful strive to confess all the sins that they can remember, they can they undoubtedly place all of them before the divine mercy for pardon. But those who fail to do so and knowingly withhold sin some place nothing before the divine goodness for remission through the mediation of the priest. For if the sick person is too ashamed to show his wound to the doctor, the medicine cannot heal what it does not know. 1457. According to the church's command, after having attained the age of discretion, each of the faithful is bound by an obligation faithfully to confess serious sins at least once a year. Anyone who is aware of having committed a mortal sin must not receive Holy Communion, even if he experiences deep contrition, without having first received sacramental absolution, unless he has a grave reason for receiving Communion, and there is no possibility of going to confession. Children must go to the sacrament of penance before receiving Holy Communion, for the first time. 1458. Without being strictly necessary, confession of everyday faults, venial sins, is nevertheless strongly recommended by the Church. Indeed, the regular confession of our venial sins helps us form our conscience, fight against evil tendencies, let ourselves be healed by Christ, and progress in the life of the Spirit by receiving more frequently, through this sacrament, the gift of the Father's mercy, we are spurned to be merciful as he is merciful. Whoever confesses his sins is already working with God. God indicts your sins. If you also indict them, you are joined with God. Man and sinner are, so to speak, two realities. When you hear man, this is what God has made. When you hear sinner, this is what man himself has made. Destroy what you have made so that God may save what you hit, what he has made. Then when, when you begin to abhor what you have made, it is then from your good works, it is then that your good works are beginning, since you are accusing yourself of your evil works. The beginning of... Good works is the confession of evil works. You do the truth and come to the light. And that's all that I have to read from or comment on now. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.